The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of MIA Equity and Equity New Zealand. Each year, the Equity Foundation delivers more than 100 masterclasses, workshops, film screenings, in conversations, international scholarships, and on set internships free of charge for Equity members. We give our thanks to our principal sponsor, Media Super. All right, good. As I said, good afternoon. My name's Alex Jones. I'm the uh, program manager of the Equity Foundation. And today I have the pleasure of introducing our special guests, Ian Colley, Daniel Netheim, and Monica Sayers. Before we commence, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nations and pay my respects to all the traditional owners of country and all throughout our country and recognize their continu continuing connection to land, waters, and culture and that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And we pay our respects to elders past and present. This is a good time to thank uh, the Equity Foundation's principal sponsor, Media Super. Media Super has supported the foundation since beginning in the early 2000s. They are your industry super fund and they can help you with your superannuation and provide you with financial advice. And they're fully equipped to, to assist with um, working with creatives. Uh, they understand the different timetables and schedules. So um, don't hesitate to contact them. And of course, contact me if you need the proper contact details. We'll have Q&A at the end of the session. So please feel free to put your questions in the chat section. I'll contact you so that I can spotlight you so you can ask our panelists directly. But you do not have to give your name, or you can ask me to ask on your behalf. All right. So please welcome Ian, Daniel, and Monica. Hello, Alex. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm very excited to be speaking to both Daniel and Ian. So, um, first and foremost, I'd also like to my respects to the custodians of the land I come from. I'm sitting here on Bidjigal and Gadigal land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you. So first off with Ian, I um, just before we started recording this, I was asking you about how you got into producing. And I think that that would be a, a great step as to, did you come from another um, methodology or another avenue of creativity was were you an actor beforehand or a writer? How did you come into producing? Uh, nothing that creative, but a slightly probably predictable way, being a former lawyer. So I was a solicitor for about six or seven years and then started running the Arts Law Centre. So the Arts Law Centre, I suppose, venturing more into arts management. And after Arts Law Centre, running the Film Directors Guild, Australian Screen Directors Guild. So that was my sort of foray into the screen industries, um, but obviously more from a management policy point of view. I really enjoyed my time at the Directors Guild, but sort of was hankering to get my hands dirty and, you know, get involved in projects and things. So I sounded up one of the board members and offered to sort of assist their company as a business affairs, you know, lawyer. So, so they brought me on, which was great. And I was doing their business affairs for a while. And, you know, I was sort of occasionally pitching them in my enthusiasm, various sort of ideas, which most of them sort of got nowhere, <laughs> just groans, but eventually one or two stuck, but they felt slightly sorry for me. So it gave me that opportunity, which was a, a dance one, a chunky move dance company. It was a half hour arts doco and we pitched into SBS and they liked the idea and we'd spoken to Chunky Move. And so, yeah, so my first sort of producer stripes was doing arts documentaries. And I spent about probably 10 years doing docos 
I've sort of eventuated, I've sort of gone on to do principally drama, TV drama and, and a film. But it's funny, in the last few years, we've been doing documentary again, which I love. I mean, in, in essence, it's all about what's the best platform or genre for the idea you're trying to tell. So, yeah, in a nutshell, that's that's me. No acting, no acting experience, I can tell you. That's great. Thank you, Ian. So then the role of the producer is often misunderstood. People don't always understand what that is all about, you know. Is it uh, it's not just financial, is it? No, look, you know, it's it's a funny what definition is, you know, it's a bit, how long is a piece of string? It it sort of has the old adage, you know, a producer's a jack or jill of all trades, a master of none. And I think there's a bit of truth to that, you know, because we cover a wide range of things. I mean, you can be a specialist, you can just be a one who raises finance, like an executive producer. You can be the one who oversees the shoot and production in terms of budget schedule, which is, you know, more the line producer or physical producer. Or you can be like me, who sort of tries to cover everything. And I don't know, the jury's out whether I do it well or not, but I enjoy it. Um, and I particularly like, you know, getting involved, you know, with the early concept idea, the idea, whether it's me coming up with the idea, whether it's me talking to third-party creatives or them coming to us. Um, whether it's, you know, reading a book or a news article or whatever it might be, which triggers, you know, so you've got that existing IP or whether it's just a random thought where you think, you know what, this could work really well because we know that a broadcaster or streamer is looking for some particular genre or idea or whatever it is. You just feel it's very televisual or whatever it might be. So I love getting in the early days and sort of helping shape that idea and then working for writers and then directors like Daniel in evolving and, you know, realising the idea. So that's the fun part for me. Yes, brilliant. So then that brings me to The Twelve, which you both have worked on. Can you give us an overview of how that was created, financed, developed and then produced? Yeah, so well, initially the, the idea itself is based on a Belgian format. So um, it was called The Twelve in my, my best Flemish, uh, which is on SBS. And the company that made it, iWorks, was part of Warner Brothers and an affiliate of Warner Brothers. So Warner Brothers Australia got the option to do the English language speaking version. Um, so Hamish Lewis and Michael Brooks at Warner's approached Rob Gibson at Easy Tiger. Um, you know, obviously I've got a little bit of a pedigree as a former lawyer, as you heard, and making some very serious and worthy legal shows like Rape, which I think you were in Monica from, right? So I've always you know, had a fascination and love of the the justice system, criminal justice system. So it was an easy one to say yes to. And we came on board and have, you know, co-developed and co-produced, brought the writers in and the directors. But at the time, Foxtel were already attached by the time Warners approached us because Warners and Foxtel have a, a working relationship. Um, Foxtel has the HBO or Warner Brothers Outbrook deal. Anyway, it was a, a wonderful opportunity and, you know, it was a great show which... Daniel can tell you more about, I suppose. Yes, please do, Daniel. Yeah, well, I guess like I, I turn up after all of this hard work's been done um, <laughs> and get given some some finished scripts, you know, at least for the first couple of episodes. So then we start the next stage of fun conversations about, you know, how are we going to translate this to the screen? What's it going to look like? And what's it going to sound like? And what sort of cast is it going to have? You know, and I think in this case, I mean, every project's unique. In this case, there was... A Belgian version of the show, which you know, I did my due diligence and had a look at, and and immediately kind of thought, well, look, we're in sunny Sydney. That was in bleak northern Europe. Um, we need a different aesthetic, you know. And I think we also established quite early on that we've got a very different legal system here, so the stories needed to change. So look, I was brought on board 
at a point that the scripts were still in in flux, you know, story character arcs were still being developed, the, the legal aspects of the trial were still being kind of finalised with a, a legal consultant. But in collaboration with Ian and Rob, you know, the producing team, we kind of made a call about who was going to shoot the show and who was going to be the designer and who was going to be the costume designer, who was going to be the casting director. And we started out, I guess, our group conversations about finding a kind of, you know, united and shared vision for the show. This initially stems from an early script, early script meeting where we kind of, you know, I make sure that the producers and I and the writers are all on the same page about what sort of show we want to make. And then I kind of go off in my own way to a certain extent you know, for those, at least for the first two episodes, in coming up with a with a bit of a visual kind of pitch document or a Bible, I, I evolve a lot of ideas with the, particularly the director of photography and the production designer and the costume designer. And then after a certain amount of weeks, we loop the producers and the writers back in and go, hey guys, what do you think of this direction? And assuming that they're happy, you know, which in, in this case, you know, I think there was definitely input, but I think by and large, it felt like we we're on the right track. Yep. Then we then the next stage was to present a shared vision to to Foxtel of you know this is the this is the combined vision that the producers and you know HODs and director have come up with. This is what we want to do with the series. Are you happy? Fabulous. So then I'm going to ask you individually. How have you ever come up to a point where on a project where you haven't really seen eye to eye? with the other heads of department or, or producer. In terms of the vision, have you had clashes at that early stage? And how do you overcome them? How do you bring them on board to how you see things? Or how do you manage that? Well, Daniel and I clash all the time. That's just part <laughs> of that. <laughs> I think, I mean, that's all part of a process, isn't it? That sort of creative to and throw. I mean, and look, the 12th, 12, you know, it was fairly cinemas. We had fantastic scripts, as Daniel said, from top writers from Sarah Walker and Julie Felicia King, Leah Purcell, I'm probably a few, plus a, a good script producing, Greg, um, Greg, whose surname I'm going to forget now. Greg you know, Waters. Thank you, thank you. But at the same time, there was a lot of story in those scripts. So you've got the, the, the main, you know, series arc of the criminal story, you know, why Kate Lawson was on trial for the murder of her, her niece, and, you know, we're obviously covering that, but you've got the 12 jurors now, not all jurors featured, but they had their own stories themselves. And then there was a further backstory to Kate, which started complicating matters. So it was a lot of story to travel. So I think that was a big challenge is, you know, which weight we gave to those, you know, various storylines. And then tonally, you know, you're going to ensure that we're all on the same page tonally in terms of the characters and their own sort of personalities and how we interpret it from the page. And then there's all the other things from costume to production design to location. So there's a lot to juggle. Inevitably, budget starts to creep in and you sometimes have to make pragmatic decisions because the ambitions that you have are not there in terms of the finance available. So that's always those practical considerations which drive directors mad, but there we go. You know, it's part of our professionalism in the industry. We just talk it through and we, we have that shared vision and inevitably there's always a little bit of give and take, likewise on casting. But, you know, eventually we just hope that we're all, it's a partnership thing and that we're all singing from the same song sheet. And I think that's um, what we all aspire to do is to do the best for the show. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I think being being challenged on a creative idea or pushed or even, you know, being blocked or meeting resistance can often 
spark, you know, greater end results. So, you know, I would say I, I, I will never, um, you know, ruthlessly defend my first creative instincts. As, as Collie said, it, it's part of a process. Uh, at every stage along the way, I can only get so far before I, you know, feel like I need to invite and and, and take on board the um, the creative opinions of the other collaborators on the show. Look, it's you know, it's it's it rarely happens that you're completely off course. You know, some sometimes you might have a a, a channel or a commissioner who have got different ideas about cast. You know, key cast people they like, people they don't like. I can think of a case on one one project I worked on in in the UK where. The scripts had been developed by, you know, with the producers and the writers, but there was a lot of a, a, a lot of discussions that had taken place that didn't make it onto the page. So that when I went out with the locations team to start shortlisting locations, we very much had a vision for the world based on the socioeconomic, you know, teachers and policemen don't earn very much money. So we wanted it to be realistic. And all of our locations got knocked back by the producers who said, no, no, look, this, we want to sell this show overseas. We want to sell it to the US. It needs to be aspirational. People in America don't want to see the grimy, realistic homes that teachers and policemen live in. You know, so that, that's a, that's a bit of a shift. You okay? Great. As long as I, as long as I'm clear on the brief, I, I can deliver the results. Yeah, it's that sort of clear communication from the get-go and also being prepared. There's nothing worse than rushing into production and the scripts are a bit half-cooked and everyone's still floundering a bit about you know, what the storyline is, or there might be plot holes or characters feel a bit ill-defined or whatever it might be. So the more that we're prepared. So once we start pre-production, everyone's on top of their game. So that helps a lot as well. Very good. Oh, and congratulations to you both for the nominations uh, for actor for, for the 12. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you. So what actually brings you to a script then or a, a, or a concept? What makes you call to tell this particular story for you Ian is there saying before as well about you know what genre is best to tell the story how do you know which one is the one to, to go with yeah well as I mentioned earlier if it's a true story then you've really got the choice between dramatizing a true story or making a documentary of it and often the latter will depend if you've got access if there's available archive or footage or whatever it might be how you visually tell the story because Sometimes, I mean, I suppose a good example is um, a little film I made called Saving Mr. Banks, you know, the Disney film with Tom Hanks and Emma. We, we had made a documentary about Pamela Travers, who was the writer of Mary Poppins, who grew up in Queensland. And it was great for the sort of 60s with Mary Poppins footage and talking to Sherman Brothers, but her early childhood experience raising in North Queensland, we had one photo of her father and her father's pivotal about it, just as it was in the film. So anyway, we were able to make a you know good one-hour documentary. I also knew in my heart that this was just such a great story, which would be better to be dramatised. And hence, we have did a um, feature film version and got up with Disney, which was great. So, you know, we always, you keep an open mind as what's the best way, certainly for true stories. Um, and look, in terms of ideas, I might have mentioned this earlier, but, you know, we ideas will come from different places. I mean, we talk to creatives all the time. People come to us at Easy Tiger if they think Easy Tiger is the right fit for their idea. And either agents or writers themselves contact us all the time. You know, they pitch in just as we later pitch in to broadcasters and buyers. You know, we make a call whether we think 
I mean, we've got to be excited by the idea. So there's just some things that, you know, it's a very subjective medium, of course. Some that go either a bit derivative or could be too genre, might be a bit too horror sci-fi for me, but it's not to say it won't be work well for others. Or it might be something that we kind of know has been done or being done. And there's only so many slots you can, you know, comedy is a good example. There's only a few places you can really take comedy to. So there's all those sort of factors, both the market pragmatics as well as is it an idea that excites? Because I'm probably not going to do something that doesn't excite me. Someone else can be excited by it. Because, um, you know, it takes a lot of time, a lot of emotional energy, you know, which is part of the joy of it. But if you, the show never, or the idea doesn't really uh, get a reaction, that's probably for me personally, not worth doing. Could be a book, of course. I'm constantly reading books. I like reading books, which is lucky. And, you know, you're always reading with one eye to thinking, could this adapt? Uh, and then, you know, it could be something you're reading in the news or wherever, and again, it could be an article, or, or the news or wherever, whatever you're reading might trigger some sort of random thought, and then you sort of uh, internally we develop with our team or bring a writer or writers in to brainstorm that idea further so we've got something which we think can then go to a broadcaster or streamer and pitch in. Mm, great insight. Thank you, Ian. What about for you, Daniel, in terms of telling a story or, or what is it that uh, attracts you to a script? What's the deciding factor for you to choose to direct this particular production? Yeah, so like assuming that all that work Ian described has already been done, you know, and that's that's also work that I that I enjoy doing, you know, is, is reading and finding stories. But in terms of being a director for hire, you know, I get finished, I get sent like at least a first draft of the script, maybe a second. So I guess, you know, I, I'm asking myself questions. Do I enjoy the read? Am I interested in the world and the characters? Do I find myself wondering what's going to happen next? Do I care? You know, is this something that I care enough about to spend, you know, the next six months of my life? So assuming all, all of those are a tick and, you know, also who's making it, you know, if it's Ian Colley, yes. You know. Forget it. <laughs> <laughs> if it's Ian Colley, I won't even read it. I'll just say yes. Um, but no, that like, so it's really, you know, it's it's a combination of really does the, does the script speak to me? Do I feel I can add something to it? You know, I can, am I the best director for it? In my own, in my own opinion, uh, who am I going to be working with? Yeah. Awesome. I mean, where Daniel's really good with scripts, because yes, we sort of generally try and get a director on board. We could even get them on board after first scripts. If the first scripts are really singing to us and it's a gut reaction you have and or the broadcasters are getting excited and starting to talk about, you know, potential green lighting it, you know, we'll start to get a director in early. Other times it's a bit close to pre-production and it all depends on where how good the scripts are and how ready they are to bring in a collaborator like Daniel. And Daniel's great at interrogating scripts and ripping them apart and, you know, finding all the plot holes and things. That's great because that's what we need, as well as the sort of production reality, because obviously there's some things that will be quite hard to film or difficult or, you know, just so all those sort of more practical considerations as well. But, you know, I know where he'll come back and say, oh, that, that character, they don't really care that much about it. And they're often ones that we haven't seen at first, but you realise, yeah, that, that the sort of story arc is sort of floundering a bit or um, emotionally it feels a bit, nothing so it's just getting enough of brain in the room and that's why it's such a great collaborative thing when we're all sort of pulling pulling together 
Yeah, it's good to have that sounding board from a different perspective. Yep. So Daniel, can I ask you, before starting the rehearsal process, how much further down the road would you want an actor to have developed a character, say? Of course, that's given that you, there is a rehearsal process. <laughs> you know, if, if I'm making a film or, or directing the first episodes of a new show, there will usually be a rehearsal process built into that pre-production the week or so before the start of the shoot when the actors have been contracted but they're still not obliged to be on set every day so look you know I, I would hope that the actor has signed up based on a certain interest in the character and an interest in the story and you know an investment and engagement certainly a good audition or a, or a productive conversation you know if, if it's an actor who won't audition or doesn't audition a productive conversation about the direction of the show and uh, you know, more of an informal chat. Um, after that, look, I think, you know, I'd be wary of an actor turned up with a fully formed idea of how this character is going to be played before engaging with fellow cast members or, you know, the production team. I would see that as shutting off their options possibly too early. But, you know, mind you, I, I you know, I like, I like strong instincts. Um, you know, I like it when people come up with, are offering really strong ideas. It's also helpful if they're open to having those ideas, you know, challenged or, or massaged. So yeah, come, come with some decisions already made, but some openness to explore further. Sure. And then, so how would you take on board um, actors that have different methodologies? If you've got a cast of people and they all kind of come from different um, acting backgrounds, is there a way that you can streamline them so that they're all working in the same show? Um, look, I think, you know, everybody's, each actor, no matter how experienced or inexperienced, is going to have their own kind of needs. Uh, I, I like to use the time in pre-production to try and iron out as many, you know, potential hiccups in advance before the pressure of the shoot, whether that's because an actor has a problem with certain aspects of the script or the character, you know, you want to kind of flush that out early. It might be, you know, somebody who's got very strong ideas about what their clothes should, you know, should be, you know, which might be based on what they're comfortable in rather than what's right for the for the character. You want to address those. But I think that, you know, what, what's great about working with really professional, experienced actors is it gives me more time on set to spend time with the newer, you know, less confident, untrained, inexperienced. So, you know, having someone like Sam Neill on set, you know, is is great. I don't need to spend any time with Sam. I mean, we've we've chatted in pre-production. He he knows what he's doing. You know, very occasionally I'll give him a I'll give him a small note after a particular shot. But it means that I can spend time with, with the young cast members, kind of challenging them about, you know, a lot sometimes a lot of quite basic things, you know, what's going on in the scene for your character. What do you want to get out of this scene? Where are you going next? Where have you just come from? So it's a really, it's just about how to most effectively divide my time. Mm. Um, you, do, you do find situations where certain performers have a different understanding of what the tone of the show is. You know, some, some people think they're in a comedy, others think they're, they're, they're in a serious drama. And I guess that's part of the director's job is to, is to iron that out using whatever techniques work to make sure that everybody's making the same show. Mm. Yeah, so how much notice do you give of the style of acting that you want, say, from uh, the larger-than-life 
type of acting to naturalistic that's often flushed out in the rehearsal period you know particularly if I've got the writer in the room and, and I, I've got to say that um you know if I'm directing material that's been written by other people i.e., writers screenwriters my whole job is about second guessing what their intentions were and trying to deliver that so if I can get them in the room for those rehearsals then we're bypassing a lot of you know uh, a lot of in-between steps they can they, they they can be a really useful tool in that room going you know what I'd never imagined that character was that big or that comedic or you know I think that you know I can't see enough empathy coming through like it's really you know the, the writer is really my ally in that first stage because I don't want to surprise anybody with rushes where where you know a cast member's kind of completely gone off on a tangent so it's about trying to be as collaborative as we can with that um we'll have a a table read of the first or second episode where we get as many of the cast around as we can and that's a chance for the producers if they haven't yet sat in on any rehearsals to get a first sense of how people are playing but you yeah, look it's ironed out on a case-by-case -case basis and my approach is very much like if you like what people are doing don't interfere if you feel it's wrong then it's time to say something I like that motto <laughs> Ian so can you let us know what what's something that when you're on the actual shoot, what is your role on on the day? What's your day to day look like when you're in production? Look, if everything's going to plan to accord, you know, the twelve's a good example. Um, then I generally, you know, take a back back row seat. You know, allow Daniel and his team to, you know, really basically realize the script and get what we're after. I mean, I like watching, uh, I'm not always on set, but I'll come on, you know, every few days. I mean, I'm, I'm really just a sort of overpaid cheerleader because, you know, I love seeing the performance. I, you know, I give feedback, you know, um, I'm never going to give critical feedback I, I, if there was something where I felt it was not quite working. And, and that first week's important because we're all sort of establishing you know, the feel for the show, the pace, the, the tone, then I might have a quiet word or two to for director. But generally speaking, you know, if they're doing a good job, you know, you leave them alone. And that applies to the actors as well. I'm not a director, so I'm not there to get performance. I leave that to the experts like Daniel. Uh, and if I love what I'm seeing, then, you know, I'm just like the, you know, the kid in the lolly shop over-infused. And, you know, I like just being there and trying to lift the energy if, if that's needed at times. But, you know, in a sense, it's it's more just, you know, being supportive and where I can. We, you know, the 12 ran pretty smoothly, but we had the usual hiccups like everyone else with COVID, which really mucked around our schedule because, you know, people getting sick. You know, we had one particular instance where we got a the testing, we got an error batch in the testing, looked like 38 people had got COVID. And we thought, oh, Christ, you know, we'll have to shut down for seven days or the usual sort of mandates. But they came back a little bit red-faced and said, oh, sorry, it was only one. So, you know, <laughs> so, um, but, you, but you're dealing with stress quite a bit. You're dealing with those little crises. Most of the time it's smooth sailing, but inevitably there's always a few things, people getting sick or, or whatever it might be. And, you know, it's a matter of dealing with them in a, you know, measured and controlled and practical way. But most of the time, that's the exception to all the, 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 you know, it goes, well, we watch the rushes, we give feedback again to the director and anyone else. Obviously, we're also the middleman or middle person for the broadcaster or buyer or streamer because they're watching the rushes and if there's some 
performances or it could be coverage or it could be framing or the look or whatever that they're not liking they'll of course be in our ear you know prattling away and so we have to talk to the team as well make those sort of corrections on the go if, if that's required but most of the time it's I mean a producer's role is managing and overseeing uh, show. I don't believe a producer should be hands-on. I mean, there are producers like showrunners. That's a totally different one because they are the creative producer for the vision and everything. But that's that's not me. I'm not a showrunner. I'm just an old-school producer. And I'd say that, like, part of that is that invariably all sorts of shit going on behind the scenes that we on set don't need to know about, you know, yeah. and I really shouldn't be distracted by. But somebody's dealing with that. Uh, I'm often quite surprised when I get to the end of a shoot and I hear what's, you know, the, the fact that you know, an actor nearly yeah. dropped out or a location fell through or, you know, so it's it's kind of, it's actually good to have somebody to, who can bear the brunt of the mechanics so that you can keep focusing, you know, as a director on on set, on the on the creatives. And... Well, that's right. Whether it's director or cast, the last thing you want to do is undermine confidence or have them panicking or worried or whatever, whether it's money issues or location issues or schedule issues or people getting sick. We try and manage that as best we can off screen so that, you know, people like Daniel are, you know, uh, oblivious to all the behind the scenes stuff but it's not as though there's anarchy and pandemonium behind the scenes most of the time it's going well but inevitably there's always going to be some issue or some sort of challenge and that's just part of our job description yes it it sounds like you are very much the master of many hats in order to be a I suppose so. Yeah. so can we move to casting now in many circumstances, you probably already have the leading actors already worked out to have them on board in order to get finance. Is that correct? Yeah, well, yes and no. You always have your people who you think would be ideal. It's a conversation, obviously, with the buyer or you know, broadcaster streamer, but particularly with the leads, what we've all cast because they've got to prove all cast anyway, but particularly with the leads because, well, two things. One, because they're the face of the show often in the marketing poster. And secondly, we also have one eye to the international market. So, you know, a, a good example, we've got a show that'll be shot down in Victoria, regional Victoria, early next year. We're still sort of doing casting out at the moment. It's a very competitive landscape for, there's a lot of production on, as I'm sure you people have heard. And so particularly for, you know, these A-list or marquee cast, there's a lot of offers, both international as well as local. So it is quite a competitive field. Yeah, so it, it's it's... You're going out to firm, but you're having to play the waiting game because one person in particular is uh, acting at the moment. So we've got to wait till he's sort of finished his stint before he has time to read and think about another character. So it's sometimes the waiting game, um, but you need that for the finance because increasingly we're reliant on that last bit of gap financing from an international advance or distribution guarantee. And they need a face that or a profile that's recognisable internationally. And that's, you know, there's a lot of fantastic local actors, as we know, but there's only a few that really have that international cachet mm. and we're all sort of competing for him or her. So it's once you've got that personal persons, then, you know, and we may bring a casting director on at the, at the same time to talk to, to use her person as a, as a liaison person with the agents or we may sort of approach the agents direct because we kind of know who they are and then bring on the casting director in terms of the next run or support roles and stuff, as well as obviously by that time we'll have the director on board as well. 
So what grabs your attention when you're looking at many actors for a role with so many people to choose from and also with an international market in mind? Do you also look further afield other than locally for your lead cast? Well, so definitely for lead cast, if, if it requires. I mean, it all depends on the role, doesn't it? I mean, um, you know, if, it's, if a role is distinctly an Australian character, you know, there are some international actors who can do an Australian accent, but not many. Uh, and also the cost of bringing them out and having a, a voice coach or dialect coach if needed, all of that sort of has to weigh in. And it's much better to refer to cast a, a local Australian actor. That's a, that's a given. But, you know, the role may well be something that the character is from overseas. We have had on a show at the moment. So inevitably we're looking for a UK actor. In terms of once those leads are cast, then... Yeah, the casting director and a director like Daniel will go through all the auditions and tapes and maybe conflict to Daniel as to what he looks for from those tapes or those audition or screen tests. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, it is, it's, it's one of the um, advantages, you know, if you've got a couple of marquee names that you need for, for financing or, you know, to, to fund the show or promote the show, it then kind of opens up the field for the rest of the cast to be, you know, you're not obliged to cast knowns or familiar faces. And in fact, it's often really great to fill out those roles with people you're not so familiar with. That's right. So I'm really, I'm kind of looking for believability and, and, and authenticity. And I mean, that's not to exclude people who are, who are, might be familiar faces, but um, who do I believe in that role? You know, I really like it when I look at a test and I go, well, this is not someone impersonating this character. This person is obviously really similar to this character. It's going to make my job really easy. I don't have to do anything. I'm going to cast them. The note from that is, you know, for actors putting down self-tapes or, or auditioning is stay in character till after the camera's stopped rolling because it's, it's, always, it's always a giveaway and a bit disappointing where you see that little bit at the end of the tape where, they, where, where someone calls cut and then they drop into their real character and you go, oh, no. Um, yeah. So I'm just really, you know, it's it's sort of like, yes, want to mix it up with some less familiar people, but people who can really inhabit that role in a, in a very truthful and convincing way. So then who would have the final say when it comes to casting? I mean, it's like a big jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is, well, one, depending on the, the for most lead and support cast, we need to get approval from the buyers, from the broadcasters and streamers. So um, they're the ones who pay for the production. So they have a big say. And, you know, if it's a, a commercial network, they may want more familiar faces. While if it's something that more cable streamer, they're probably more open to um, newer players. So it depends, of course, who your audience and who your partner is on this. And then, you know, it's generally between the producers and director We'll, you know, we always go back and forth a bit, but we eventually find common ground, sometimes a bit of give and take, you know, okay, I trust you on this. I'm not totally convinced about his or her audition tape, but if you think she or he or she can <laughs> realise and, and do what you're after, then, you know, I, you sort of trust the director. I generally trust their instincts. So, so it's probably the two-prong approval process, if that's your question. Yeah, great. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's often a case of everybody taking a leap of faith, you know, I mean, unless you've seen an actor play exactly that role before in a previous show or, or movie, you know, you're taking a leap of faith. So it's a combination of, okay, look, they look, they look kind of right, you know, they've got the skills, 
we've got a sense of, you know, how they might take on this part. But short of having them audition for every single line they're going to say in the whole show, you know, it's a leap of faith. Sometimes, sometimes you're disappointed. Sometimes somebody doesn't deliver in a way you hope they might. Uh, but it's not, there's nothing scientific about it. You know, you, you're going by kind of instinct. That's why it's great to have second opinions or to be challenged by the networks occasionally who, you know, there might be a network that's had an experience with a cast member on a different show and they can say, look, I don't think this person is right for that, but we've worked with another person who we think could be really good. Keeping that in mind uh, in terms of previous work experience, give us a, a short list of do's and don'ts of protocols that you should and shouldn't do on set. Things that you've noticed and taken note that, hmm, okay. Yeah, look, I, I would say the big, the big things, which, you know, you, you might seem obvious to everyone, but you'd be amazed at the amount of people that don't do this is turn up on time and know your lines. The basics. <laughs> turn, up, turn up on time and know your lines. And, um, you know, you'd think that the more experienced people get, the better they get at those things, but sometimes it goes the other way. And I think just, you know, be, be res to, to be respectful of fellow cast members and, you know, other crew members on set always goes a long way. Bad behaviour, it doesn't necessarily show up in the final results. You know, good actors are good actors, but it can, for me, the process is much a part of the whole experience as the end result. You know, you want, it to, you want to be working in a pleasant place with nice people to work with. So I think, you know, be a nice person to work with goes a long way. Because it's and a very, method, isn't it? It's, it's about the team. Whether you're yeah. on or off screen, it's, it's really a, one big team and how you play within that. Yeah. And there are certain things that I will say to less experienced actors, you know, by, by way of not even protocol, it's just like good, good, good techniques. Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the things I'll always say is if I don't say anything after a take, assume that I'm happy. Uh, you know, I will always try and give some kind of feedback or uh, if I don't have a note, you know, at least some kind of praise, you know, to, to, to let a person know that I'm watching them and I am gauging their performance. But especially when you don't have a lot of time on set, you know, your attention is usually focused by the things that aren't working as opposed to the things that are that are working. So I do like to remind actors of that. You know, I appreciate what you're doing, even if I don't say anything. I'll also, it's always a good reminder to new cast members, you do have the right to ask for another take. You know, if you're not happy about something, if you want to try something different, I will always give someone another take if they ask for it. If they ask for it every single time, I'd probably, it'll change my attitude, but I'll give it. But I think the key thing is ask for it quickly because as soon as the camera's moved, you know, then you're grinding, then you, you, you're slowing down the process. Mm. But, but if you can see that that camera's still there, you know, the director's walking around going, okay, great, I'm happy, let's move on. Put your hand up quickly. Because I don't, I don't like anyone getting home at the end of the day feeling like they haven't had a chance to do their best work. And that's the environment, you know, that, that I want to create on set is everybody feeling like they've had a chance to contribute the best of what they can offer. And so in saying that, Ian, uh, sorry, Daniel, um, what, would you be, what would be your advice if someone wanted to say something um, directly to you but didn't feel comfortable in that space to, let's say you were talking to the DOP or... Mm. or and there was something about um, the shot and yet the, the actor didn't feel like it was their right time. How do they get in on a, 
bring up a conversation of, of this particular shot that's about to be taken? Do they speak directly to you or is it better they speak to the first AD or someone yeah, else? Well, not available, they can speak to the first for sure, you know, um, or, or the third. And if something happens and they don't, and they, they, their opportunities missed, you know, I'd say, bring it up at the end of the day, just say, hey, look, I just wanted to mention, I would have loved to have done, done another take. You were busy. I didn't know what the procedure was. And I'll just say, oh, look, I'm so sorry. Next time, just do this or just butt in, you know, you are the most important person on set, you know, so you're the one whose faces everybody's going to see. So I think, yeah, even, even doubt, ask the question. If, if it doesn't feel like an appropriate time, ask at an appropriate time and um, you'll get an answer. I think it's just keep, keep the two-way communication going. One thing to add, which is more in the post-production after the performance when we're editing, and it's a bit like what Daniel was saying, you know, that if I don't give you immediate praise, don't take it negatively. Likewise, occasionally, especially if you're a small support role in the edit process, that role, that performance might get dropped. And it's often not because of the performance, but because, you know, the, the pacing of the sequence or the you know, commissioner is just not that invested in that small secondary character or whatever it might be. And so it's usually, uh, but it's obviously probably fairly crushing for the actor to watch the show on TV and say, where am I? What happened? Oh, was my performance such a dud? It usually isn't a reflection of that, but it's just the machinations of post-production where the, the episode itself might be too long because often when you've got a rough cut, it's going to be over time anyway, so we're often fine cutting down. And secondly, it just, for whatever reason, it's you know, happened a few times where the performance is fine. It's just that where we need to cut away and get to whatever need to get to from a story point of view. And alas, it's an easy edit that we can do, but it's, you know, it's a bit crushing. I appreciate for the poor actor who's given his or her best and ended up on a cutting room floor, but it's just the... Yeah, no, that's a really good point because there's not really a kind of mechanism in place for, for calling up every, each and every agent or actor going, hey, I'm really sorry, but your three lines got dropped, you know. <laughs> People might be gathered around the TV with their whole family, you know, waiting yeah. for that one moment. But yeah. yeah, like as Ian said, when, you, when you've got a 67-minute assembly and the episode needs to be 52, something's got to give. I mean, I think part of the problem is that we're all incredibly busy and, and you know, and you sort of have to move on quickly. And so as much as you'd like to have contacted that actor or that agent, sometimes falls between the cracks. And so anyway, but not to take it personally. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so can I jump to um, working overseas? Daniel, how have you found between the UK and US and coming back to Oz, what is the differences between all three uh, regions? Actually, funnily enough, the UK has got quite a different casting process, which always surprises me given, you know, their great tradition of kind of, you know, nurturing nurturing actors and performers. But, you know, you know in Australia, we, we, get a, we get an actor in to read opposite someone who's auditioning. Um, you know, and it's great. It's work for it's work for actors, but it really gives those people auditioning for the role. You know, it gives them someone who's a performer who they can respond to. In the UK, they don't do that. And what we usually have is the casting director or the assistant casting director with the script, just giving a really flat read, and and often just sitting down opposite a table. Um, and I've often tried to kind of say, hey, don't you think it would be, like, you know, we're, into, we're auditioning 20 people today. Don't you think it would be a great idea to get in an actor who could read all the offlines 
because I, I often like to give a note to the reader, you know, when they're a performer, that you can really ship performances by what the reader's doing. Anyway, they've never embraced that idea. So that, you know, they're stuck in that tradition. Apart from that, on-set procedure in the UK, it's pretty similar to, to Australia. I mean, some of the crew roles vary slightly, but in terms of the role of the actor, you wouldn't notice a difference. And I haven't worked on enough US sets um, to you know, to know, but I think, I think, I think the way the US sets work is quite different to the way Australian and UK work. UK, UK, Australian, very similar. Anything to add there, Ian? Look, not really, because I haven't, I mean, obviously I talk to international partners and broadcasters regularly as part of the packaging and getting the finance, you know, in terms of, uh, certainly I was on set of Same Mr. Banks, but it was a huge studio thing. So it's it's just totally different. And, and to be honest with you, I found it a little bit alienating. It's sort of everyone, it's quite unionised, quite hierarchical. Um, what I like about the Australian thing is it's a lot more collegiate. There's a lot less hierarchy. I mean, it's still a hierarchy, but there's, you know, people get on and talk and everyone's in their little silos in the American production because we did rake as well, but I really was only on set a few times. And apart from the huge size of it, yeah, I just found it didn't appeal to me as much. I like sort of being part of a small team and everyone's sort of working together. There's no sort of that sort of strict, rigid hierarchy or whatever. So I suppose that was my take on this. But I can't say I'm a veteran overseas production like Daniel is. So. Okay, thank you. Um, let's move to diversity. Do you think the fight for colourblind casting has been won? And representation across uh, the different um, areas. Do you, how do you think that sits with the financiers and the network executives now? I don't think you could say it's been one, but I, I certainly think it's heading in the right direction. I mean, you, you know, the, a lot of the broadcasters, ABC, SBS, obviously, because they do have now a mandate or charter in terms of diversity, both in storytelling and um, casting. And even some of us, like I know Paramount Plus does as well. I'm sure Netflix and Amazon do, and as Orfei. So I think there's definitely a push. I know when we cast now, we're always looking as, as much as possible for diversity and, and also in crew, to be honest, as well, particularly with gender. You know, so Dr. Doctor, which is five seasons, I know one of our, um, I suppose, sense of achievement was having more female directors than male. We only had a few male directors and the crew itself was fairly much split 50-50 on a gender front, at least, not so much on a diversity front. So but that's all important as far as changing sort of thing. I think one of the things I think still a, a story, like we've got a story that I'm really excited about, which is set in the Chinese-Australian community. It's a sort of a bit like a slightly a little bit of a killing eve sort of private investigative sort of story a dramedy I suppose you call it but you know it has been hard to get it up and I sort of think it's still that question of broadcasters being conservative like it's okay having particular characters from a non-anglo perspective but if it's a whole community I think they are still a little bit shy about it because I think they worry that they're not going to get a big enough audience I mean that's just me my opinion I might be wrong there but apart from indigenous drama it's still not a lot of non-anglo drama focusing on a particular community apart from maybe SBS mm -hmm. so I think that's where they can we can have a more diverse storytelling um, output I think is definitely room for improvement yeah I mean it feels like we haven't quite caught up with the UK you know in terms of 
you know, I think more than 50% of Australians were born overseas or had a parent who was born overseas. Um, so that's a lot of diversity within the community. You know, most UK shows that I watch or work on, it's pretty normal that, you know, Joe Bloggs, whether supporting character or, or major character, could come from any ethnic group. I do, yeah, I haven't quite seen that, you know, and I've seen it in some things I've worked on, but that, you know, that it's it, you're coming from a completely kind of colorblind starting point that anybody could be of, from any kind of ethnic um, background without it being referred to in the script. Yes, I've definitely noticed that myself in, in self-tapes coming through, but it is, um, yeah, starting to, you know, oh, even the surnames are now just not necessarily representing what my ethnicity is. It's just, you know, this is the name of the character and we don't have to talk about why I look this way. Yeah. It might come out later on in the story, but. Um, so do you think the barriers are coming down a bit? You know, you're at the coalface. I so think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, there have definitely been some changes. And also, like you were saying um, about crew as well, just recently I did a short film and seeing female crew, DOPs, um, yep. you know, gaffers and, and people of colour as well behind the scenes is, is really quite encouraging. So, yeah, I think that there is some balance coming coming forward. Of course, there's always. Yeah. Well, look, you know, but Screen Australia fairly strict on it now. And, of course, we're still fairly reliant on Screen Australia funding. Mm -hmm. So that all helps giving us that important nudge or push if we're yes. you know, still lapsing in old habits. But I do think that the, the wider community are, are ready to hear stories from different Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you both. We'd now like to open it up to questions from our guests who are listening. So, Alex, I'll hand it over to you. Well, we've got quite a few questions about producing, interestingly. Oh, enough. no. Oh. And, uh, and uh, Josephine's first up. <laughs> Hi. Just wondering if you've got some advice for me. So I've got a project that um, I think has got a fairly good chance of getting on some streamers, but I'm an emerging producer, so I don't have any relationships planning on contacting acquisitions obviously but I just wondered if you had any ideas of like the best way to put my foot forward in that because I don't have relationships with them yeah look I think what you have to do is partner up with someone who's experienced as a co-production because you'll never probably well when you say never it's unlikely that a <clears throat> broadcaster or streamer in tv would take you on board as a first-time producer so you probably need to partner with someone who's obviously got that breadth and experience I mean I had to do the same thing with Save Mr Banks I've never produced a feature film and this is a big feature film a big Disney one so I approached Alison Owen from Ruby Pictures who had done Elizabeth you know the Kate Blanchett movie and others because I'd like what um, Alison had done in terms of some of her female skewing films of the past and we met and we we clicked um, and I knew that was really the, the practical way of me trying to convince a big studio like Disney that, you know, because they would never trust me by myself. So I think in a similar way, if you've got a TV or film idea and you don't have that, the runs on the board, then you find the right partner. And it's like a partner, you know, so depending on the style of show and the content, you look at those production companies that have made things that you like and you think that's going to be a good fit. And then either directly or through your agent, you contact them. Producers are always hungry for new stories and we'll always meet and have a coffee and, and then say no. <laughs> yeah, 
No, so mine's already completed. So oh, it's a, oh, sorry, it's a completed film. I'd just be looking at acquisitions. Yeah, okay. Well, look, but okay, then it's a matter of going to the acquisitions, uh, what do you call it, person, um, buyer for, uh, and I suppose it's working out who, what, what's the best platform, you know, if it's a streamer or a broadcaster or iView or whatever it might be, where's the best fit and approaching them. I mean, most of them, um, hopefully on their website or list who the acquisitions person is. Otherwise, yeah. you, you contact them and say, I've got a completed film and, you know, someone will put you through. They're always hungry for content. Yeah. yeah sorry. Is there any way to sort of stand out from the pack? Look, I, you know, because I haven't sort of been in that position because I get commissioned generally and I sort of make it always. Right. But, but, but look, okay, what you need is, I mean, marketing materials are really important. So... You know, maybe worth rather than forget about my advice about partnering with a producer is partnering with someone from a marketing who's a marketing person who's done film and TV and who you can help or can assist you in terms of marketing materials. The poster, you know, the title, you know. So we've done a show as telling Monica and Alex, we've got a show coming up. I'm doing a little bit of a spook here, but we've got a show coming up soon called Colin from Accounts. Yeah. Um, the comedy of Patrick Brown and Harriet Dyer. And a lot of people just love the title because it's sort of, well, it's a silly title in a sense. And when you watch it, you realise it's got nothing to do with accountancy or accounts department. It's the name of someone, well, because it's a name Connor. But anyway, it's a distinctive enough. And then we work with Binge to do the marketing materials, which you'll see soon because it's coming out, and the trailer. So I think working, I don't have expertise in that area, but there will be people who can assist both doing a trailer, getting the poster, because poster art is everything, because particularly, as you said, you've got a, there's so much content out there. So, um, you know, it's a matter of having something that's really distinctive in terms of the look, the title, et cetera, because I assume you don't have big name casts, so you're not relying on that. But, no, it's actually it's we'll a need to, uh, just fan will need right, to. Yeah, I've just got a quick. There, a few people have asked about pitching. Uh, a lot of actors are looking to move into producing, have a little bit more creative control over their careers. So yeah. If they've got a great idea, what is some general advice about pitching to film, television producers? Well, similar as I was just saying to um, last person was. You know, find out who you think would be a good production company to partner up with, you know. And so, and once you've found that potential suitor, then you approach them, usually for their website. You know, producers are always generally available and see if you can have an opportunity to either have a coffee to meet them face-to-face -face or on Zoom if you're interstate. Um, and usually, you know, it's the sort of thing where it's like when I've just come back from MIPCOM, which is the big TV market. The half-hour meetings... You know, you can't really get an opportunity to pitch the whole story, but you can give the kernel order the sort of general sense of it, and then you follow up with a pilot script or the, the outline, and then, you know, hopefully that um, producer will get engaged. And if not, you know, it's like auditioning. There's plenty of other places to go to or, or opportunities. Just make sure that if it's to do with a book or anything that's got existing IP, that you either have the rights or you find out at least that the rights are available and you ask this production company, you've probably got more clout. I've read this book. It's fantastic. It's available. Are you interested in bringing me on board? We can then option it. We've probably got more likelihood if we've got track records, especially for writers reasonably well known. So doing it that way. Does that sort of answer the question? Yes, that's great. Yes, that's good. Thank you, Anne. Back to you, Monica. 
Okay, thank you all. That brings us to one o'clock. I'd, I'd like to thank both Daniel and Ian for your time and for giving us your in-depth knowledge of all the things. And I very much appreciate Equity and Alex for bringing us together today. And thank you all for listening at home. Oh, well, thank you to Monica and to Ian and to Daniel. Uh, they're all so busy. Uh, so getting everyone together like this was, you know, a wonderful opportunity and we really do appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you all. And of course, to all who, who attended today. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by our principal sponsor, Media Super and the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work we do, visit equityfoundation.org.au or follow Equity Foundation Australia on Facebook and Instagram.